Hello and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles. Most of the podcasts you'll find here are recorded in our Sunday services, hence the not always perfect audio quality and background noises, but occasionally something or someone else will be featured. We're the kind of Christians who like the Bible a lot, but we're not the thump you with it kind of ones. We believe in the world-changing power of the love of Jesus and the present-day work of the Holy Spirit to change things. We're also always trying to integrate all this culturally applicable truth in real ways that reach our emotions and intellects, as well as our spirits. We're starting 2020 with a seven-part series called The Holiness of Health. The truth about our emotional and mental health doesn't always get centre stage in church, and while this is all stuff that we talk about quite a lot at Bread, we wanted to kick off the new decade with a proper, in-depth look at this stuff. We hope you enjoy it. getting the pitch. Amen. I do like to sing. Would you like me to hear me sing some more? I could sing my heart. No, no. What? Uh, Anyway, it's good to see you all. Welcome. If this is your first time uh, here at Bread, uh, you're very welcome, particularly welcome. My name is Ed. I lead the church with my wife, Hannah, and you're going to have the dubious privilege of hearing me drone on um, for a little bit about some things. Anyway, uh, we are continuing with our series on delving a little deeper going beneath the surface to try and identify some of the deeper issues that stop us from actually becoming the beautiful, free, holy, clean, healthy Christians that we are, right? So when you become a Christian, you become a new creation. That has happened. You are something new, not what you were, something completely different. And that can never change. Nothing could ever stop that. That is what has happened once and for all. Nevertheless, the process of us fully embracing that newness, fully actually living out that newness, in Paul's language, ridding ourselves of the oldness, that actually takes a whole lifetime. It's a lifelong process, and it's a process that we can either choose to engage in or not. We'll always be new creations, but how much do you want to look like it? So, the more we're able to acknowledge those old parts of ourselves and allow God to heal and redeem them, the more we will be fully what we already are, the beautiful, sinless, shining new creations that he has made us. So today is actually about going back in order to go forward, looking at some of the things that may have colored our past, allowing God into them so that we can have them healed and restored. Let me tell you a story. I don't come off particularly well in this story. I'm warning you. Hannah and I were living in London. Our youngest daughter, Margot, was about two years old. Our next two daughters were four and six. And mainly because of some badly diagnosed or undiagnosed issues with Margot, our youngest daughter's gut, she uh, was intolerant to various foods that we didn't know about. And so we were happily feeding her these things, and it was causing her pretty severe pain the whole time. Uh, We were feeding her normal things. We weren't feeding her like 
bits of shrapnel and mud. We, we were feeding her normal cow's milk, it's just she couldn't tolerate it. And it meant that she couldn't actually tolerate any animal proteins at all. <laughs> uh, but it meant that she had to be held the whole time. If she wasn't, she would scream at this high-pitched scream that destroyed everyone's heads. And uh, it meant that she didn't sleep at all. And so uh, her sleeplessness meant that we were sleepless, meant the other two were sleepless, and they didn't get much of a look in. We were exhausted the whole time. I was working full-time, and Hannah was working part-time. And life, I think it would be fair to say, in the Flint household was not peaceful. It was quite traumatic. Hannah and I would be basically niggling and kind of um, almost fighting all the time, but not quite ever saying it, just niggling. Niggling and niggling, and basically taking out our exhaustion and our frustration and probably sort of low-level depression out on each other now and again. For me personally, I just wanted everything to change. I just wanted this to stop. It has got to stop. And subconsciously, I sort of blamed Hannah for it. Strangely, deep down in my conscience, I managed to decide that Hannah was responsible for Margot's intolerances. I don't know how I did this, but I did do it. And I kind of thought that Hannah was intentionally not just sorting all this out because she wanted to cause me pain. This is what goes on in my psyche, deep down in my psyche. I wasn't aware of it, and then I was aware of it after one fateful evening. I had been working, I was exhausted, Hannah had been looking after the kids all day, she was exhausted. I came back and we walked into the kitchen. You could t cut the tension with a knife and I opened a cupboard and in this cupboard is where was, held, uh, where was kept our condiments and our um, uh, spices, you don't need to know this, but anyway, our spices, those sorts of things. And as I opened it, various jars fell out of the cupboard. One of them, the one I wanted, had some sort of sticky, undescribed thing on it and the lid was off so it sort of poured out everywhere and then all the sort of pent-up frustration came out and I said something that was very bizarre I turned around to Hannah and I shouted, I shouted and I said my mother would never keep a cupboard like this <laughs> boom I need to say a couple of things. One, the kitchen has never been Hannah's domain or my domain. We actually share the kitchen all the time, the cleaning of it and doing everything in it. Two, as far as I was aware, I hadn't been thinking about my mother at all. And my main feeling after having said this was, what is she doing here in my thoughts? And yet, nevertheless, there she was. Number three, I love my mother very much, and I love my wife very much. In fact, they are two of the most extraordinary, talented, wonderful women I have ever met. They're amazing. Number four, Hannah and I started therapy quite soon after this. <laughs> because what became clear through that was that my family of origin, my upbringing, my past was affecting my present quite severely, and much of it very unhealthily. My mother was and is a superwoman. She pretty much does everything for the family. She also listens to most of my talks on the podcast. Hello, Mum. This one, this one might not record. Uh, she ran the whole show. This was partly because of her personality and also because my dad was pretty absent, so my mum basically fulfilled the role of two parents doing everything. And she was extremely capable. Uh, 
So when I was confronted by the experience of chaos, I am subconsciously looking for someone to sort this all out. I want someone to take control and make everything better for me. I basically regress to being a little teenager. And I resent Hannah for not sorting everything out. But, and this is the other side of the thing, I really do not want my mother involved. I definitely do not want my wife to be my mother. That would be awful. Because the other side of my mother's huge capability in basically running the show was, and this wasn't really her fault, it was my experience of it. My experience was, I am feeling controlled by this the whole time, and it is making me feel squished, and I feel like a lack of freedom, and I've got to get out. That was my general experience of teenage years in the Flint household. Please do not control me anymore. And so, also, I spent a lot of time bringing all of this into the marriage. On the one hand, now and again resenting Hannah for not just being this person who sorts all that, out all my problems and letting me be a teenager without responsibility. And number two, uh, kind of if she ever made me feel like controlled, getting very angry. Poor Hannah. Although you wait until we get onto her problems. <laughs> But the point is this. We're not going to get onto her problems, don't worry. The point is this. Without exception, all of us, without exception, have been and continue to be influenced by our family upbringings. And while some of those influences may be extremely healthy, a lot of them actually are doing us no good whatsoever. And this is what I want to talk about this morning. Happy times. Going back in order to go forward. Now, of course, we are also affected by other experiences that have got nothing to do with our families. If, for instance, you were, I don't know, bullied at school, or if you um, had problems with addiction or whatever that's got nothing to do with your family, obviously, these are going to color our experience now. But nevertheless, our families, our family of origin, are the most powerful groups to which we will ever belong. And even those of us who have determined, I am never going to let this family influence me ever, ever again, and as soon as I'm able, I'm going to get out of there and never go back, we still find now and again, oh, look, our families are still here, right with us, influencing how I behave. It's why it's so common to see repeating patterns of behavior throughout generations. I don't know why, but it seems to be the occupation of doctor is something that generations, it's like, oh, there's a doctor, and then there's a doctor, and then there's a doctor, a bit like teachers. There's lots of generations of teachers. But similarly, on a more negative side of things, you can see patterns of generational things like divorce or addiction or abuse. They often kind of follow down because our families have influenced us a lot. Now, I don't think these are particularly spiritual things. I just think they are the effects of what happens in nuclear families when things are not healed. We pass it on, I'm sorry to say. Now, there is, of course, this perennial debate among sociologists of whether this comes to us from nurture or from nature. Is it just how we were born, our biology, or is it created for us by the environment that we live in? Now, the Bible does not give a clear answer. In fact, some of the time it seems to say it's both of them, some of the time it seems to say it's one of them, and some of the time it seems to say it's neither of them. Stuff just happens. But what the Bible does make aboundingly clear is there is a solution. 
which after all the debating and the theorizing and all the research has been done about whether it is nature or nurture or how we are how we are, that's what we're really all after, isn't it? The solution, the healing, the moving on. But everyone, psychiatrists, sociologists, spiritual healers, whoever, everyone, including the writers of the Bible, agree that in order to experience the remedy, we do actually have to identify the problem, which can mean looking at some uncomfortable things. It can mean looking at some painful things from our upbringings. Now, a good starting point would just be, just to be, sorry, I can't speak today. A good starting point would be to just acknowledge that our parents weren't perfect. For some of you, this will be very easy to do. For others, it won't. Even the best of them, even the best of them. Now, I'm not having a go at parents here. I am a parent myself. I have three children. I am not looking forward to the time when they have come aware of all the ways in which I have seriously, seriously messed them up, and then they want to have a chat with me. I am not looking forward to that, and I'm also not looking forward to all the ways in which I am completely unaware of the ways in which I've deeply, deeply affected them. I just thought I was doing the right thing. So I'm not having a go at parents just for having a go at parents' sake. Most parents, I want to include us in this, are just trying their best. And probably, possibly, your parents were doing the same. So this is not an invitation to beat them up just to beat them up. That does no one any good at all. Everyone, though, was made for perfect love. Each one of you was made to experience perfect love, and however good our parents were, they have not given it to us. So if we don't acknowledge the failings of our parents and their parents and their parents and how they've affected us, we will almost inevitably recreate the sins of our fathers and mothers. And you actually see this throughout the biblical narrative. Just by example, have a look at the generational history of Abraham, the father of us all, the father of our uh, whole faith, God's choice for the world. Abraham, for instance, lied twice about his wife, Sarah. Isaac, Abraham's son, married Rebekah, and their whole life is a relationship characterized by lies. They then have a son, one of whom is called Jacob. Jacob, whose name actually means deceiver, was a big fat liar. Imagine deciding to call your son that. I think we should call him deceiver. He was such a big liar that he put on a fake beard and tricked his dad out of the inheritance that should have been his older brother. Big liar. Then 10 of Jacob's sons were such big liars that they pretended that their other brother was dead, faked his funeral, and kept on the lie for 10 whole years. So the genealogy could read, Abraham, who was a liar, gave birth to Isaac, who was a liar, gave birth to Jacob, who was a liar, a really big one, and he was the father of 12 sons, 10 of whom were also massive liars. And this, before we get onto their terrible treatment of women, the fact that they 
all show terrible favoritism that sort of ruins everything and the way in which they cut themselves off from other important members of their family. It keeps on happening because it's not addressed. So what is it that you have received from your families that has had unhealthy effects on you? As I said in my talk, kind of introducing this whole series a couple of weeks ago, if we want to do this properly, it's going to get a little bit messy. Now, you don't have to do this, but it's probably going to get a little bit messy because we prefer to keep those painful things deep down where they belong so that we don't have to access them. However, they will rear their ugly heads now and again. And it would be better for us at least to try to access some of these things so that we can let God in to heal them. What was handed down to you, for instance, about money? Is money the ultimate source of security? And if you haven't got it, you should be very scared. Or is money a scary, evil thing and you should reject money at all costs because it's awful and it will destroy you? Or is money ultimately the sign of success? And if you haven't got it, you have failed. What about conflict? Should you avoid it at all costs? Or is being loud and angry and having big fights actually normal and constant and something that people should engage in more? What about sex? Never talk about it. Talk about it a lot. Have one set of rules for males and one set of rules for females. What did you receive from your family about dealing with anger, grief, relationships, attitudes towards other cultures, success, or just feelings and emotions in general? It's important to ask ourselves these questions from time to time. Now, one of the things I love about this country is that there is a general openness to uh, self-reflection. Therapy here is not a bad word. There doesn't seem to be too much stigma attached to it. And I think that's a very good thing. I come from Britain where we don't... We, I, the whole nation last had a feeling in 1850. Something like that. And certainly you don't go to therapy. This is a very sad story. But a friend of mine, um, she was about 15 at the time, I think, from a big family, five or six of them kids. Uh, and they were part of a church, and they were a very kind of um, influential part of a church. They were very well loved, particularly the dad, who was the kindest, nicest man ever. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, he had a heart attack, aged in his early 40s and died. And the whole church grieved, and they grieved. But my friend said um, she wanted to go to therapy to try and uh, sort this out, or try and sort of talk a little bit about it. Um, but those in influence over her said, no, we don't do that. We don't do that. We don't need that. You'll be fine. Very sad. And actually profoundly dysfunctional. I'm a big fan of therapy, and I think it's a good thing to do, because at times in all of our lives, sitting down and talking to a trained professional about how our experience of life has shaped us, why things happening to us, how, why we are reacting in certain ways that we really don't want to be reacting. This is a very important thing to do, and identifying these problems is a huge part of the battle. However, what therapy isn't is the supernatural power 
of the risen Lord Jesus to heal and to restore us. And as such, it will only be part of the solution. What we need to do is come to him with what we find. And this actually is often the hardest part of the process. So he can, in his grace and his unending kindness for you, as Alice was saying, you are his friend. You are his best friend. In his unending kindness, what he will do is we will heal it. Because that's what he does. That's what he's for. And let's be honest, that's what we're after, isn't it? Not having to drag the past around with us anymore. Now, this can take a lifelong uh, amount of time. But it's better to start the process, or it's better to carry on the process, than to give up on it. So, therefore, to end, let us look to him. And what I want to show is that Jesus not only acknowledges all the influences of our past, not only does he say, well, yes, these are the things that have happened to you and I'm not going to try and sweep them under the carpet. Not only does he do that, he also changes them and heals them and deals with them in his own supernatural, powerful way. And I'm going to do this through reading through the genealogy of Jesus. I know that's what you wanted, to hear about the genealogy of Jesus. One of the most boring parts of the Bible. Let's read it. Hopefully this will work. See where I'm going in a minute. This is from Matthew. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. It's a bit like the genealogy of anyone else. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. I'll skip ahead. There's various other people. Verse 6, Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Actually, let's go back a bit. Salmon, Salmon, <coughs> the father of Boaz, <laughs> whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and then Jesse, King David, blah, 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 blah. Verse 16, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Quick few points. There is an issue with the genealogies. There are two. There's one in Luke and there's one in Matthew. And one of the issues that people often raise is, I thought we were talking about historical accuracy. How is this historically accurate? Quick point about this. One, the uh, genealogy in Matthew, which we did, had, just had read, omits various names that Luke's includes. Matthew's goes from father to son. Luke's goes from uh, son to father. Uh, Matthew starts with Abraham, Luke starts with Adam, and neither of them have nearly enough names to actually account for all the generations that they're supposed to be accounting for. Now, some of these issues are um, solved by the fact that Matthew is writing predominantly to a Jewish audience, and Luke is writing predominantly to a Greco-Roman one. Now, the way Jewish genealogies would work, which is this one, was go to from father to son, and Matthew's therefore following this, and there is a focus on Jewish heroes in Matthew's version, namely Abraham and David, whereas Luke's follows the Greco-Roman tradition of going the other way, and he roots Jesus in the non-Jewish-specific names of Adam and ultimately God. 
Jesus is Adam's son and Jesus is God's son. So it stops being Judeo-centric and it, can, it means that it can be understood by anyone. Also, Luke traces things back through Jesus' mother Mary and Matthew traces them back through Mary's husband Joseph. So you're going to get different names. But ultimately, the point is this about genealogies. Genealogies were supposed to be a way of recommending yourself to the world. They are like our modern resumes. And like a modern resume, and I'm sure you've never, ever, ever done this, but like a modern resume, there is a certain amount of artistic license in the way that you portray yourself, which is not to say that you fabricate anything. You just make it clear that this is the sort of person you are. So, for instance, you could say that you are an international recycler of products when actually you've just sold some old socks to someone on eBay in Canada. Uh, this is what they're doing. You are trying to give it an impression of who you are. Which, as I said, is not to say that they are fabricated. But they are supposed to be learnt so they can't be too complicated. Rather, it's the number of names, not the number of names that are included that's important. It is the actual names that are included that are important. It is significant. Ultimately, what both Matthew and Luke are doing is saying, this is who this man is. This is his resume. This is why he's interesting. This is his story. But the thing is, and here is the point, and this is the reason for reading this this morning, it's not necessarily the story that the world was expecting. Because if the story that you want the world to hear is someone of extraordinary, perfect lineage, the most amazing person who ever lived, you wouldn't include some of the names that Matthew includes here. Because who have we got here? Well, first of all, we've got some women. And you would never include women at that time to... Uh, endorse anything because women don't endorse anything. Their um, testimony is not even legally binding. And yet, five women are included here. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Uriah's wife, and Mary. So to kick off, Matthew includes gender outsiders. But it gets worse because there are also racial outsiders too. Now, Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, does a hashtag humble brag about how amazingly Jewish he is. Circumcised on the eighth day, from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he says. It's a million miles away from what we get here about Jesus. Because Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth are all Gentiles, not allowed in the temple, racially unclean, not able to experience the presence of God. They're effectively spiritual sort of mongrel dogs, mutts. And yet they're listed as Jesus' endorsements here. And it gets even worse. We've got gender and racial outsiders, also some moral outsiders too. Rahab is a prostitute. Tamar, she pretends to be a prostitute in order to sleep with her father-in-law, Judah, after having married, been married to not one, but two of his sons. None of these people need to be included by Matthew, but he includes them because he wants to include all the sordid details. And even, and this is the most important point, when he talks about David. David, the great hero of Israel, what does he say about David? He says this, David, verse 6, was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. He is making it clear just who this David is. Uriah, of course, was one of David's best friends. He protected him and looked after him when Saul was trying to kill him. 
And yet, because David decides to sleep with Uriah's wife Bathsheba, David decides to get Uriah killed. And that's what Matthew is saying. He is not slighting Bathsheba by not including her name here. He is talking about the snake David, the terrible, awful snake David. Jesus' greatest ancestor. Gender, racial, and moral outcasts. Murderers, adulterers, and cowards. The law of Moses precluded all these people from the presence of God. But Jesus is owning them. And this is the point. Jesus acknowledges your history. He acknowledges every history. He acknowledges all the terrible things that have happened in history. He does not sweep them under the carpet, but he owns them. Because he's not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed of your history. He's not ashamed of your family. He's not ashamed of anyone. But he owns them because, secondly, he wants to deal with them. He wants to redeem them and to restore them. The word genealogy has its roots in the word genesis, which means beginning. And so... In Genesis, at the beginning of time, ever since then, things have gone wrong. The genealogy of Jesus is saying things are now going to go right again. If we go back to the final verse, let me read this again. 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is a bit of, again, artistic license. 14 is two sevens, and the point that Matthew is making is... Uh, actually a significant point. This is six lots of seven generations. And in Jewish thinking, the seventh generation is when everything starts again. It's the year of Jubilee. It's when all debts are cancelled, all property returned, everything starts again. And so what Matthew is saying is, since Abraham, things have basically not gone very well for people. Generation upon generation have caused, ha- ha- <laughs> have caused harm and pain to one another. But now Jesus, now Jesus acknowledging all of that and restoring it and healing it for himself. And this is how that story ends. Romans 8. What Jesus does through his death and resurrection, he pours out his spirit on all who will respond to him. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. It's tempting to make that uh, childship or daughtership, and I understand all the reasons for that, and I think they're the right reasons. However, there is an important point of calling it sonship because sons in the Roman world were heirs, which he goes on to. It means actually having everything from the Father. And so by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. What Jesus does for us is he gives us a new father. A whole new father. A perfect father in heaven who puts zero expectations on you. 
He puts zero requirements on you. He just fathers you. And he gives us a new name. Christian. Little Jesus. That's what it means. You, a little Jesus. That's what he's done. Made you into a little Jesus. One like his perfect son. Which means all the other names that you have received. Not good enough. A bit of a disappointment. I don't know what he's doing in L.A. Needs to get a job. I don't know what she's doing in L.A. All the other names that you may have received. The black sheep. The white sheep. An embarrassment. A mistake. Or good, as long as you keep doing that. As long as you keep doing that, then great, then I'm very proud of you. All those other names, Jesus nails to the cross and kills them off forever and says, little Jesus, you're a Christian now. You're my son. You're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter. In you I am well pleased. And I always will be. And we're given a new inheritance of hope for the future, healing for the past, the power for our calling to fulfill our purpose on this earth and all the resources of heaven to enjoy. And we're given a new family. For those who are, of us who are orphans, spiritual or non-spiritual orphans, orphans in any way, what he says is he binds us into a whole new family and we have people who will have our back, who will be brothers and sisters to us forever if we let them. That's what the church is for. Let me end with this. One of the reasons we came here to start this church was because we wanted um, to take the one thing that we knew how to do, which is only one thing, really, which is how to um, help people uh, understand the work of the Spirit in theologically and intellectually satisfying ways without any hype and without any sort of um, smoke machines or um, you know, anything else because that's not the spirit, that's smoke machines. It's a way of, um, uh, of actually communicating the biblical theology for who the spirit is and what he does, but in a non-hyped-up way. And part of that um, involved uh, some friends of ours who were running a church, the pastor of whom had come to our church by accident and had experienced the spirit. He was a good conservative. And he'd experienced the spirit, and it would be such a transformational um, process for him that he wanted the whole of his church to learn about this, but the whole of his church didn't want to learn about it. So he invited two of my colleagues, two of my friends, to come over and talk to the church about it. And they came along, and most of the church not interested. And then one, his best friend and his um, sort of uh, co-leader of the church and his wife, they had dinner with my friends John and Matt. Uh, Matt? He wasn't called Matt, he's called Chris. That doesn't matter. Uh, and anyway, they had dinner. And they were talking um, uh, about who the Spirit was who, and what he does. And uh, they said, why don't we pray for you at the end of this dinner? So it's this pastor and his wife, and this other uh, pastor and his wife. And uh, my friend John started praying for uh, the husband. My friend Chris started praying for the wife. Nothing happening. Nothing. It's just like, this is not happening. Uh, and so they decided to switch over. My friend Chris prayed for the um, husband. My friend John prayed for the wife. It doesn't matter. 
started praying. And then my friend Chris, as he's praying for this guy, suddenly remembers, and I apologize if you've already heard this story, suddenly remembers in his mind's eye a little scene from that movie Hook. Now, if you remember, uh, it's not a very good film, uh, but in that film, uh, this, the little kid, have I shocked you? Okay, it's brilliant. It's the best film ever made. I don't know. So anyway, he's, um, uh, he's saying, I've just seen this and I want to share it with you. In that film, the little kid is playing Little League. And he's going up to bat and he desperately wants his dad to be there. He's played by Robin Williams, I believe. And, um, but he looks round into the bleachers and he sees that his um, dad's not there. At this moment, this guy, who doesn't even believe that the Holy Spirit does anything now, suddenly falls to the floor and is writhing around on the floor for hours. Not for hours, for minutes, for a while. Let's just call it a while. He's writhing around on the floor, sobbing his eyes out, but with a huge smile on his face. And it's such a commotion that people in the apartment downstairs come upstairs because they think there's being a burglary. They walk in, my friends John and Chris pray for them, and they fall on the floor as well. Uh, this guy's falling on the floor, and by the end of it, he's just slumped up against the wall, and he's just going, there's so much love, there's so much love, there's so much love. Most sort of euphoric experience of the Spirit. What it turns out was, that he, when he was a kid, totally unbeknownst to Chris and John, was he had been playing Little League. And his Little League team was the same name of the team from Hook. I can't remember what it's called, Pirates or something like that. And he had looked round on one particular game to see if his dad was in the bleachers, and he wasn't. But he came up to him afterwards, his dad, and told him that day that he couldn't be his dad anymore, and he was leaving. The most dramatic and emphatic negative experience of this guy's uh, life. But in that moment of experiencing the Spirit, what he felt for the first time ever was his Father in heaven being his Father and healing that pain. And his experience was of the love the unconditional love of his father so that he could actually access the most painful thing in the world for him. That's the power of Jesus to meet us exactly where we are, to heal our hurt, to restore things from us that have been robbed from us and to bring us into the fullness of who we are. No one else can do it. You can't do it. No, matter, no amount of self-help can do it. But he can. Because he is the king of the universe. And he loves you. So then, what I suggest we do is we um, stand and we'll sing a song. And then I want to encourage you if you'd like to, to try and open yourself to the Spirit and to allow him in to whatever he might be putting his finger on. Now, if you imagine yourself to have a bit of a wound, if someone puts their finger on it, it hurts a bit, doesn't it? 
when the Holy Spirit puts his finger on stuff, it hurts a bit, but the reason it hurts is because he wants to take it away from us. He wants to get rid of it. It's like a surgeon's scalpel going in to take it off us, to take it out of us. That's what he comes to do. We can experience all the freedom and the healing when he does that. Let's stand. Uh, Kristen Garth, where are you? Uh, we had a prayer, where are you? Are you somewhere? Um, we had a prayer meeting before, and there were some prophetic words, and I just wanted um, uh, Kristen just to share what she felt God was saying. Um, I saw a, a picture of uh, a whole bunch of kind of large vessels, and, um, and then someone was just pouring, pouring them out onto the ground, and it was kind of like yucky, black, grey stuff coming out of them. And then I saw them all stand up again, but then get poured a new fluid in it. It was like sparkling gold fluid filling all the vessels up. And I feel like God was saying this morning that um, that is for us. A lot of us have got to let go and pour out a lot um, of the darkness and pain that's within us and just be filled with the Spirit. Thank you. So that's a picture of what Jesus wants to do for every single one of us. So what I would suggest is, as this song plays, you don't necessarily have to sing the lyrics. You can just close your eyes and allow God to speak to you. But what I would suggest is this, is to come to him like a child. Picture yourself like a little child with zero responsibilities. You have no responsibilities. You're a little child and come to him and tell him what you need to tell him. So no bank account, no job, no rent to pay, no car to fix, no to-do list, just as a little child, come to Jesus, tell him what you want to tell him, and allow him to meet you like that. All the talks from our Sunday services are written with an aim to point people towards and help them open themselves to the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't think he's just a bit part or an optional extra in our Sunday services, following his lead is kind of the whole point. So at the end of each service we invite everyone to receive prayer. There's no magic in the way that we pray for people, we've just found that it's the easiest and most natural way to open ourselves and that when we do that, he often meets us in the most wonderfully transformative ways. If you're able to join us at a service, we'd always encourage you to give this a go, as out of your comfort zone as it may be. Do drop us a line at hello at bread.church if you'd like to talk about any of this more. Thanks for listening. <laughs>